So for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to turn to the gospel of John chapter 2, and I'd like to read the first 11 verses with you. Certainly encourage you to follow along in your Bibles and keep your Bibles open. See, it's on page 1054 of the Pew Bible. God's word, John 2 at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, I noticed from the prayer that there was a wedding in the church. I think it was probably in this church uh, yesterday, and certainly, you know, summers are uh, tend to be filled up a lot of the weekends with uh, with with weddings. I've uh, I've been privileged to be a part of officiating at a lot of weddings in in the past, and as I was thinking of Jesus' first sign turning water into wine at this wedding in, in Galilee, I thought of one in, in particular, I think it was about 2015 out west. And uh, as the bride and groom were uh, giving their vows, immediately at the end of uh, the girl uh, giving her, uh, I do, a huge thunderbolt uh, sounded and shook the church. If you know anything about living out on the West Coast uh, in, in BC or in Washington where I, I was living for about 10 years, uh, you'll know that we don't have a lot of thunderstorms out there. One of, one of the joys of returning to Ontario is to see some great, great thunderstorms. Um, so not only was it shocking in that moment, but uh, it was just kind of shocking overall to hear that loud, um, a thunderclap. And it shook the building, and there was kind of a, uh, a bit of a, a shout of surprise you could just feel in, uh, in the church building. I, um, I've lost track of that family that left the church uh, soon afterwards, moved out to, uh, to another state. 
I hope the sparks are still flying in their marriage, pun intended. Um, at this wedding, this is when the Lord Jesus Christ gave the first sign to his disciples and to all that were watching who he actually was. He manifested his glory. His glory started to descend like that thunder clap, but even louder and stronger and more glorious. As people came to see that he was not just, just a man, not just prophet or teacher or rabbi or any number of ideas out there, opinions out there about who Jesus Christ actually was, but he actually is God in the flesh. He's come to bear mankind's sin, to deal with our debt, and to rise again from the dead in victory over sin and death. And um, we're going to see this morning that he chooses for the first time, as his first sign, to reveal himself at a wedding. And we're going to see there's something significant in that. So the encouragement this morning is to see the glory of Christ and believe. And just a couple of points drawn from this text. First of all, Jesus is the true master of this feast. And secondly, he is the bridegroom of the bride of his church. First of all, he is the master of this feast. If you know anything about the rest of Jesus' ministry, three years of ministry, starts about 30 years old, you know he's going to do all sorts of marvelous, miraculous signs. And in a sense, it feels a little surprising that his first sign is turning water into wine at a wedding. I mean, he's going to heal people that have been sick from birth. He's going to tell Lazarus, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And Lazarus is going to come out even though he had died. He's going to tell demons to go into pigs. I mean, he's going to say amazing things. People are going to marvel at his teaching. He didn't teach like the scribes. And yet he chooses for his first sign where he reveals his glory, in particular to his, to his disciples. Uh, something that seems a little more mundane than that, than healing someone's diseases or raising somebody from the dead. Uh, he's going to turn like 150, 180 gallons of water into the finest wine ever drunk at a wedding. It seems a little petty compared to the other signs. And we could talk about, you know, the culture of the day, the tradition of the day, the expectations of the day, and, and sure, this is a significant opportunity of, for shame for the master of the feast, for the bridegroom, for the entire family. Uh, weddings, some of our weddings go on long. Sometimes they go on a little longer than maybe we want them to. They go late into the night. Uh, but these weddings could last days, even weeks, back in uh, the ancient Near East. And um, running out of wine might be a little bit like if you had filet mignon on, on your menu for your wedding. And after 150 guests had gone by the buffet table, uh, you ran out of filet mignon and the rest got hot dogs. That's a little bit, you know, suggesting some of the embarrassment that the bridegroom, the master of the feast would have experienced when the wine uh, ran out. But still, manifested his glory by turning water into wine. A lot of people, although I'm, sh I'm sure the truth would have, would, have, uh, would have gone around, didn't even know what had happened. They just thought 
boy, this is, this is a great master, this is a great bridegroom, he brings out the best wine. At the end of the wedding, halfway through the wedding, 150 gallons of the best wine you've ever tasted. But you see, Mary noticed, and the disciples noticed. And something happened in their minds and their hearts in terms of their understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. And no doubt that happened to others as well. Who is this Jesus? What has he come to do? He's God in the flesh. He takes something and he creates something new. Who can do that? Who can take water, plain ordinary water, and turn it into wine? Who can mold something like that? Only God can do that. You glance your mind over our text and, and you see that there's this master of the feast there who's running the feast. He's responsible for, for the provision for the feast. But the true master of the feast, and we read about in Isaiah chapter 25, this rich feast with the best food and the richest wine, the greatest vintage anybody has ever drunk. Speaking of a glorious feast that's to come, that Jesus Christ is preparing for his people. He's the master of that feast. And not only does he save this wedding feast uh, from embarrassment, from running out of the wine which flows to celebrate, you know, this, this new marriage, this love, this new home. But he's the true master of the feast that's going to last into all eternity. It's a joyful reminder that the one who has come is none other than God himself. Nobody... Nobody could solve the problem. Nobody could deal with sin. Nobody could deal with all of the brokenness that had come into this world because of our failure and rebellion. So God comes himself. And my mind is, is drawn back from a wedding feast, uh, back even to the beginning of the Bible. Uh, before sin, when Adam and Eve enjoyed every kind of fruit from the tree that you can imagine. There was one tree they couldn't eat from, but there were a bounty of trees they could eat from. And the garden just gives us this picture of fellowship with God around a, a beautiful, abundance, flourishing garden. A constant feast, not only of, of food, but of relationship with God. And as they're cast out of that garden, there's the sense of loss, the sense of brokenness, the sense of a relation with God that's now not what it should be of enmity between us and God because, because of our sin. There's this perfect peace and, peace and joy, and then that peace and joy is lost. And we've been suffering the consequences ever since. And now Jesus demonstrates by providing 180 gallons of the best wine ever that he's come to make everything broken right again. And everything that's wrong, everything that's hurting, he's come, he's come to heal. And everything that, that brought death and spoke of death since the fall, he's come to bring life. And all the sadness and all of the tears, like Isaiah is talking about Isaiah 25, he's come to wipe those away, to deal with the, the reason, the brokenness behind all of those tears. He's come to, he's come to rescue us. He's come to heal us. He's come to save us. 
And not just, not just for, for this life, not just temporary from sickness and from sin and from sadness and from brokenness, but permanence. Isaiah 25 looks into the future and looks to a, a time when the Messiah is coming, but also when the Messiah would return. He comes with the best wine. He comes as the master of the feast to bring gladness, wholeness, feasting back to this, this broken world. Well, Isaiah just saw a little picture of what was going to happen. And now in our text, Jesus Christ has come. God himself has come to do what no prophet, no priest, no king from the Old Testament could ever do. He comes as the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's the true master of the feast, both in his life and in his death and his return. But secondly, he's the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom of his church. I can still kind of remember what it was like to attend weddings when I was not married. It's sometimes horrible to think of, of uh, what would, where I'd be right now without my wife, without finding her, or the Lord uh, finding her for me. But I can remember going to weddings. You know, we, go, we grew up in a small church, and we usually go to all the weddings in the church. We'd be invited at least to the ceremony, right? And um, you, you, have, you have those thoughts. Some of you perhaps said that yesterday at the wedding or another wedding this summer. You know, they found each other. You know, am I ever going to find the, the one the Lord has provided for me to be a life, a life partner? And, uh, and when will that happen? And, and, and sometimes you despair a little bit. How am I going to find the right, just the right person? Jesus comes to this, this wedding as a rabbi. I mean, he's come about 30 years old. This is not his purpose himself uh, to be married. Uh, he's fully human, though. And so, so he comes as part of his calling to give his life away, that this would not be a part of the human experience that he would enjoy being married and have a family. That's, in a sense, part of what he gave up in order to, to do what he has come to do. Now Mary knows that he's, that he's special. That's why when she sees the problem, they have no wine. She goes to, to Jesus and asks him to help with the problem. And there's this give and take with, uh, with Jesus where he mildly rebukes her. I think probably a better translation is dear woman. Um, there, is, there is a there's, there's a kindness there, but there's also a mild rebuke to Mary. What does this have to do with me? And part of the reason for this is that Mary would start to see who he actually was. What does this have to do with my calling to save the embarrassments of the lack of wine at, at this wedding? My hour has not, yet, has not yet come. And yet he goes on and performs this miracle. And he's the true master of this feast. He provides what was, what was lacking. I believe we're, we're, we're experiencing something of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. As Jesus proceeds to turn that water into wine. And I want us to, to look at the heart of Jesus in particular 
as he himself is the fulfillment of that prophecy from the Old Testament about this wedding feast. God as, as the bridegroom of his, of his bride, the husband of, of the people of Israel. First of all, notice as he's performing this miracle that he sees and notices the beauty of the bride. Uh, the wedding, uh, you know, wedding is a time where even tough guys you know, might, might weep. I've known m- myself and, and other tough guys to, uh, you know, to cry at weddings. <laughs> and we find our hearts stirred because there's something truly beautiful about a woman and a man giving themselves to one another, making vows before God and before the witnesses. And I think, I think Jesus is profoundly moved here. And not so much with the wedding and its beauty, that, but, but because of what it stirs up within him in terms of his role as the one who will give himself away for his bride. That he's the true bridegroom that's come to save and purify his bride. In John chapter 3, people come to John the Baptist. Kids, you might remember John the Baptist. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus, a voice crying in the wilderness and uh, John the Baptist, when Jesus came, he started to lose his influence. In fact, some of his disciples left John the Baptist and, and are now following Jesus, like James and, and, and John. And in chapter 3, verse 28, uh, people come to him and ask him what he thinks about everyone going after Jesus instead of him. And he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He's losing disciples. He's bleeding disciples to Jesus. Well, the bridegroom's here. I'm, I'm, the, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. Why would they any longer follow me when he's come? Go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This this event that's about to approach, his giving his life away for the bride, the loveliness of his bride and the anticipation of that marriage feast at the end when Jesus comes back, is flooding the heart of Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry as he gives the first sign of who he actually is. It's important that you realize and understand and contemplate just how thrilled Jesus Christ is with the bride. How much God the Father adores his people. Lest, lest you have a half-hearted sense of just how rich his mercy is and how great his love is towards his people. And lest that would keep you from trusting him completely for all that you need. Contemplate just how filled with the lights Jesus Christ was when he came. And he, and he saw, I mean, he witnessed every single day all the effects of our rebellion and sin. I mean, it was just surrounding him. It was, 
in his face. It was approaching him constantly. Jesus, I need this. Here's, here's, a, here's a demon yelling at Jesus. You know, here's, here's the, the Jewish leaders that should have welcomed him, you know, plotting uh, against him. I mean, that happens right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And, and through that all, he perseveres in full commitment to do whatever needs to be done so that his bride would be made whole and would be, would be ready at that wedding feast. And, and you and I need to contemplate that. <laughs> to live a life of faith, to live a life of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to live a life overflowing with joy for what he has done for us. This is no half-hearted um, sacrifice. This is no half-hearted pursuit for Jesus. This is full on love for his bride. The God of the universe has come down to earth and is pleased to give his life away for sinners like you and me. How does the writer of Hebrews put it? For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He goes on and provides the, the wine, not because Mary wants him to, not so much because of the embarrassment that would have been to his host, but because... He really wants to be here. And he's ready, to, he's ready to demonstrate his glory so that all might see. And eventually, many would come to believe and be saved through his blood. He really wants, he's been desiring, he's able and he's willing to be the bridegroom, the husband for his bride, his wife, his church but not only that, there is something here, in, a, in addition to his being enamored with his bride, there is a sense in which Jesus is also realizing what it will cost him to be the bridegroom, to give his life away. This uh, 150 or 180 gallons of wine um, looks a lot like blood. Not too long from now, but three years from now, you know, he'll raise a glass and say, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, throughout his life, um, in the fulfillment of the Father's will and the plan before all eternity to save lost sinners, He's going to have to give his life away. His, his blood will have to be shed, the blood of the Son of God. He's done no sin. He's lived from all eternity. He's going to have to give his life away. He's going to have to shed his blood. His blood will have to flow for, uh, for sinners. The, the burden of every single ugly sin will be pressing down upon him like that crown of thorns. And, and he will have to face even the wrath of God in those hours of the, on the cross in order for our, our sins to be paid, in order for the, for the debt that we owe to be redeemed, 
so that we could go free. That phrase that he uses in, in uh, verse 4, uh, Dear woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If you, if you read through, uh, through the New Testament, through the Gospels, and Jesus uses that phrase quite a, quite a bit. And, and every time he uses that phrase, he's talking about his death. This, this hour. And he'll say a number of times, my, my hour has not yet come. My hour is not yet here. At a certain point, he will say the hour has come. And that's the hour of his death. And, and the, the intensity of his, of his passion. And all that happened is his trial, the, the, the mockery, the accusations, the, uh, the kangaroo courts. I mean, the, the total expectation in every sense that he was innocent. And yet, he's crucified. His own people call for him to be crucified. They tell him, you know, people say things like he saved others. He can't even save himself. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross, we'll believe you then. Even after all of his signs, beginning with this one, he's going to have to give his life away. He's going to have to do what they could never do for themselves, what we could never do for ourselves. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for people who were on their way to godliness. We just need a couple of, a little push. He died for those who are totally lost. And he sees the beauty of his bride, but he also understands now as that wine flows. Every time a, a glass was raised in celebration at this feast, he saw what it would cost him to give his life away for you and for me. What it, what it would cost for us to go free and his, his bride to be ready, to be cleansed. There will only be wine at my wedding feast if I give away my life. I think he deliberately chose those, um, those jars full of you know, water for washing. There's all sorts of rites of purification, washing of hands and such. And he uses that uh, to demonstrate the need for his bride to be cleansed and for his ability, his alone, uh, to cleanse from, from sin. This wine is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How is he going to make that a reality? And, and more and more, he felt the weight of that. He will have to give his life away. True God, but true man. Understand the weight of that. Understand the love of Christ even more as that weight descended. He became to, began to understand the reality of what he would have to do more and more throughout his life. You know, there's that marvelous wedding moment where you can imagine a bride coming down the center aisle, Right? And the groom kind of comes in, and yeah, you notice him, but, you know, he and his groomsmen come up, right, and they're standing up here. Everyone's waiting for the bride to come. <laughs> um, and then I can remember, I can still remember, there was actually a, a partition at the back, and the door was closed. So I didn't see my wife until the door came open. Well, she wasn't my wife yet, but my bride. Um, the door opened, and then... Christy, you know, came down the aisle. And then, of course, everyone, the music starts and everyone stands up and you turn towards the bride, right? You want to see the beauty of the bride. And 
whenever I go to a wedding, not only do I you know, anticipate that and, and, and get involved in the moments of that, but I, I will always glance over at the groom as well because I want to see what's happening with the groom. You know, what, is, what are his facial expressions? Once in a while, um, I have seen a look of terror. Uh, uh, no doubt. Sometimes I've been up there with the groom, um, helping the groom, <laughs> getting ready for what's about to happen. But you know, usually there's, there's just a smile of delight. There's a smile of like, how did I deserve this person coming down the aisle, right? How is this, how is this possible that this is happening? And it's like years of waiting and years of praying and, and uh, this fulfillment. So I want to encourage you this morning, uh, keep your eye on the groom throughout your life, throughout your <clears throat> ups and downs, throughout your disappointments, throughout your despair, your doubts, depression, uh, times where you're not quite sure uh, where God is in the moments, those, those sleepless nights, times of loss and disappointments. And, um, and terror, anxiety and panic attacks and trouble and disappointments and, and broken relationships. Your struggle with sin and with uh, deep and dark temptation. Never forget who you are. You're someone who has confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. You've seen his glory. You believe in him. Uh, don't take your eye off the groom. Ravished with his bride, fully willing, fully capable to go and give his life away so his bride can be saved and whole, and doing that with joy unspeakable. Never forget that. Never take your eyes off the bridegroom throughout your life. And when you do, and you find yourself starting to you know, fall away and starting to disbelieve starting to be attracted to all kinds of other lovers and idols. Then hear his word, hear the gospel again, and turn your eyes back to the groom, back to Jesus Christ. He knows what he's left behind. I, glorious eternity of fellowship with the Father. He knows what he's come to do, and he did it. And when he comes back, he's going to be further ravished by the bride that he will make fully perfect for all eternity. Let me just close with a couple of thoughts before we, uh, before we end here this morning. Uh, first of all, make sure you are at that wedding feast. Another pastor and I were sharing a conversation last Sunday after, after service, and we both shared a number of situations we had been involved in in relationship with, with folks uh, that we saw die without Christ. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that weighs the heaviest on a pastor's heart, and any Christian's heart, I think. You're in a relationship with somebody, you know somebody, and, and you see them die, you know they die. They died without Christ. Make sure you are at that wedding feast. Cry out to Jesus Christ today. Ask him to credit his perfect righteousness to your account and take your sins upon himself. Make sure you are at that wedding feast. And then I want to encourage you, 
You know, uh, Mary doesn't quite yet know um, who Jesus is. That's a developing thing throughout her life, like all the other disciples. But he, she did say to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. I don't know if that stands out to you, but it did to me. She knows something of his glory. And um, she's, she's walked with Jesus through many years. She's the one who gave birth to him. And uh, she's the one who had the Holy Spirit come over her. I mean, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And from the beginning, you know, from Luke 2 and throughout her life, we have this, we, we have this, this example of Mary before us where she pondered all these things right from the beginning. She kept them in her heart. She meditated on them. She made sure they didn't leave her, her heart, her mind. They, they, they affected her, sinner though she was. She pondered these things. I would encourage you to do that as well. Do whatever he tells you. He has the right to claim your loyalty because of what he's done. He's given his life away for the bride. He's done whatever has to be done. He's done it willingly for you and for me. He has the right to claim your loyalty. Do whatever he tells you. And then ponder these things. Spend time on the good news of Jesus Christ. Dig in to the life of Christ. Make it your purpose and your goal and your joy to come to know Jesus Christ more. He came here, his first sign at a wedding, at a glorious wedding feast, was to display his glory. And his purpose was achieved. His disciples believed in him. So believe in him and ponder these things. Have you seen his glory? Remember Christ. Remember uh, the bridegroom who has so loved his people, so loved his brothers and sisters to give his life away. Believe on him and trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the greatness of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a marvelous privilege it is for us to look back on the work of the Messiah. The Son of God and Son of Man, his finished work. And um, Lord, your promises are new every morning. Your promises have been there, and yet it kept on getting better and better for your people. And finally the Messiah came. And, and uh, Lord, your church has only grown ever since. Our people have come to know and to see the glory of Christ and they've trusted in him for salvation. And uh, you've saved the, the best wine. You've fulfilled all of your promises. And uh, Lord, the best is yet to come. That um, glorious wedding feast. The lamb and the, and the bride. <clears throat> what a... Um, what a marvelous thing it is to think on, to ponder on, to uh, experience this, um, this love and this mercy, this persevering grace in the words and the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And help our eyes to, to remain fixed on our Lord, on the King of kings and Lord of lords, on our brother, our um, substitute, our friend, 
And um, help that to change us. We pray in your son's name.